All right. Good morning, church. Would you just uh, go ahead and join me in quick prayer as we begin? God, I thank you so much that your people are gathered in this place. We just claim this morning the promise that you gave us that where two or more are gathered in your name, that you are here. God, I feel so strongly in my heart that you have a word for me today and for this church today. And I pray right now a very simple prayer. I pray first of all that I would decrease, that you would have room to increase through me and to speak through me to those that have gathered. And I pray that each one here would decrease as well, that you might increase in their life. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. I was, uh, I was struck by how perfect the worship set was, because we're going to talk a little bit today about the condition of our hearts. And it's also so good to be so welcomed in a place where I am so known. Um, we're actually in the middle of a series back home in our church, National Community Church, that is titled Known. And we're talking about what it means to be fully known by God and fully known by those around us. And I was thinking about that as I prepared uh, for today's message, and I was reminded just what a special thing it is when the people that know you best welcome you, when the people who know your flaws, your idiosyncrasies, your failures, when they welcome you. And you know, that didn't even happen for Jesus. A lot of you know this story, but it's in Luke 4. But Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown, after he's been well-received in the surrounding areas, and even after having the very voice of God come down during his baptism and proclaim him as the Son of God, and express great pleasure in him. After all of that, Jesus goes home to Nazareth, and he's rejected. Why is he rejected? Because he was known there. He was rejected because they knew who he really was, or at least they knew who he had been. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And I would just make two observations before we really get started. The first one is that they knew the fully human Jesus, and so they rejected him. But boy, did they miss out because they didn't know the fully God Jesus. They refused to know that Jesus was the Son of God, and and so what happened? Jesus left. The Bible actually says that they tried to throw him off a cliff, but because he was fully God, he walked right through the crowd, and he went on his way. But the point is this, because they knew the fully human Jesus, they missed out on Jesus, the Son of God. And the second point I would make is simply one of, thank you for welcoming me a little bit better than they welcomed Jesus. I really do appreciate that. There's not a lot of reason to, and uh, in fact, I would just tell you this morning that I am simply Stephen Melody's son. And before I walked up here, I was given a picture of my grandfather. I'm just Ida and Owen's grandson. And I'm awfully proud to be both those things. But I'll just say this, if the message doesn't do it for for you today, if I get to the end of my message and you're not feeling it, uh, try not to throw me off a cliff. That'd, That'd be really great. Um, But I do want to say a real quick word about this church as well, Church 214, and how much I appreciate the message behind the mission of this church. The message of Acts 214 to step forward. 
the message to step out and step up for the mission that Jesus Christ has called us to. It's so consistent with what God has laid on my heart to share with you. And so I'm excited, I'm filled with anticipation, because I really believe that the very name of this church suggests a people who are ready to hear that challenge. They're ready not just to hear it, but to step up and to meet the challenge. So you can settle in for just a few minutes, but I don't want you to get too comfortable, because as we wrap up today, I'm going to ask you to step forward and to step into what God has in store for you. And so we'll get to our text in just a few minutes here, but I just also want to say I'm I'm so excited to be jumping into this series on David. Phil and I were talking about this beforehand, but it's just so perfect because it's right at the core of what's been burning in my heart, and it's right at the core of what I've been writing about as well. And I know a lot of you have already read it, but uh, chapter 9 of my new book, In Search of the King, which you're going to be given a copy of as you leave today, it's centered around David. And right at the root of what I want to talk about is a question that King David asked. It's a question that expresses a deep longing to know the identity of his king. And here's what he says. It's going to be on the screen, but it's Psalm 2410. He asks this question. Who is he, this king of glory? Now, we're going to get to how David answers his question later on, but I want us to spend a few minutes first focusing on the character of David that causes him to ask a question like this. What is it about David that caused him to ask what seems to me like a self-evident question. What was it about David, a man after God's own heart, that caused him to continue to ask who God is? Why is it that David, despite knowing full well who the king is, continues to ask, who is he, this king of glory? And I hope by the time we're done today that all of us will realize that asking that question, asking that question lies at the very center of discovering the heart of God. It is a perpetual longing to know more of his identity and more of his character and more of his ways and more of his presence that allows us to walk in deeper intimacy with him. Church, what we're aiming for is not some intellectual conclusion or spiritual perfection. What we're aiming for is a heart that, however imperfect, is continually longing to know more of the king. We're aiming for a heart that's so desperate for the king that all else fades away into insignificance. We're aiming for a state of being that causes us to wake up every morning, not content to stay where we are in our relationship and our understanding of the king, but each day asking anew this question, the question that David asks, who is he, this king of glory? Now, I've so loved following along with this sermon series as I prepared and I listened to what each of you have been speaking into this series. And for anyone listening here or anyone listening via podcast, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to those messages that lay a foundation. Uh, You can find them at church214.org. That's where I listen back home in D.C. And I want you to listen to them because I can't fully recap here, but they lay such a great foundation for what we're talking about. Just by way of very brief recap, Heather talked about how Israel rejected... God's kingship, and also the differences between how Saul and David responded to the anointing of God on their lives. Isaac Schaefer, who some of us call 2.0, we do it because he's a new and improved version of Isaac Bennett. I'm just kidding, Ike. They they actually don't come any better than Isaac Bennett, uh, the truth is. But he talked how critical it is for us to identify key relationships in our lives uh, that we need to draw from and those that we need to invest into. Kip talked about giants in our life and the importance of realizing that the victory over over those giants was achieved on the cross. 
Phil talked last week about building a legacy and the legacy that's in a name. Loved it. All of it's a beautiful setup for what we're talking about today, the questions of the heart. And and for ease of note-taking and recall, I'm going to put up here on the screen, I'm going to break it down into three simple questions. And we're going to spend just a few minutes answering each of these questions. And we're going to spend particular time and focus on the first one, so don't stress out too much if we're nearing the end of my time and we're still on question one. Um, But I'll give you all of them now. Question number one, how do we truly become men and women after God's own heart? Question number two, how can we truly discover the king? And question three, how can we be the one? Question number one, how do we truly become men and women after God's own heart? And I'm, I'm so grateful this morning for Church 214, but with your permission and indulgence, I want to incorporate a tradition from our church back home, if you don't mind. Um, and as I read the main text from God's Word today, I would just would you stand with me? This is something that we do back home out of reverence for the Word of God, and, and I just love it. There's, of course, no biblical mandate to do this. You don't have to do it. And we're going to go through some other texts today as well, and we won't stand for those. But out of reverence and gratitude for the Word of God, let's stand for this one, and I'll read it. It's Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. A lot of this is very familiar to you. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have vanished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Thank you. You can be seated. There's so much from David's life that we could unpack and that you all have been unpacking. Uh, you know, on the positive side of the ledger, we could talk about his shepherding or his musical prowess or killing a lion and a bear or defeating Goliath or his status as a mighty warrior. We could talk about him hiding in caves as he was chased by a king or even being a king himself. And then on the negative side of the ledger, the challenging side of the ledger, we could talk about his out of control lust. We could talk about how that out of control lust led to adultery. We could talk about how that adultery led to conspiracy to try to cover up the adultery or how that conspiracy led to murder to cover up the adultery. Or we could talk about how it led to the unthinkable tragedy of losing a child. And that's the part I want you to step back and think about for a second. Because I know this is not new or unrealized to some of you. Come, Lord Jesus. Some of you know this unspeakable horror. The horror of losing a child. I know it only secondhand, but... I would tell you this morning that the possibility of it haunts my mind on a regular basis. And I think about how God willingly sacrificed His only Son, and I'm here to tell you that's just not a choice I would make. 
If you gave me a choice between a room full of strangers or a world full of strangers and my only child, my only son, Jude, I'd take Jude every day of the week. I don't pretend it's maybe the right choice, but it's the one I would make. And when it comes to my only son or any of my children for that matter, I don't make an apology for it. You just can't have them. But some of you know this horror that David faced. And it makes what David suffered because of his sin all the more real to you. And I want all of you to imagine that horror that you know with a multiplying factor of understanding that your child's death was a direct consequence of your sin. That was David. We're talking about an historically impressive man, yes. And we're talking about a fatally flawed man, yes. But I think this is the part that we miss. We're talking about a mortally wounded man. We're talking about a man with a crushed heart, a broken heart. And I would just say to you, some of you feel like your heart is flawed this morning, and it is. Some of you feel like your heart is wounded today, crushed today, and it is. I want you to know this morning that that heart in that condition, is the one that the king wants. Our king is not looking for a perfect heart. He's looking for a real heart. He's looking for a crushed heart, and a broken heart, and a yielded heart. And I want you to hear me here. He's looking for your heart. In the condition that it's in today, But even with all those things, the good and the bad and the crushed and the broken, there's one thing about David's life that that just leaps off the page to me as the one thing that I want to learn from him infinitely more than all the rest. One thing that I want my life to be about, and one thing that I desperately hope is said about me after I'm gone. If you talk, talk to my wife, Brooke, I know that she would say good things about me, right? She would do it because she loves me, she wants the best for me, and she chooses to see the good in me. But she knows better than anyone that the, the fully human side of me. She knows, not in some all-have-sinned sort of way, but she knows that I, like you, am desperately lost and inclined to sin and death without the covering grace of Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you this morning, standing here in that place of fallen human depravity, the thing that I want the most for my life and the thing that I want to learn the most from David's life is this. I am desperate to know how to be a man after God's own heart. There are a lot of things that I would really like. I long to be a godly husband, and I long to be a good father. I yearn to be a good friend and a living example to Christ in my workplace. And a lot of other things. But church, more than anything, I am desperate to understand how to be like David in this way. A man after God's own heart, as Acts uh, 13.22 calls him, And I hope this morning that you long for that too. So I'm going to talk about how we do that. And I find that the Bible tells us that the secret to being a man or a woman after God's own heart lies in the posture and the pursuits of our own heart. And, you know, I think that might seem overly honest to you, but I think if we take an honest look at our life, I think that most of us would find, certainly me included, that we're more inclined to focus on our heads 
and our hands are works than our hearts. But it is our heart that holds the key to being one that is found after a, man's own, a man after God's own heart. Our text today, Jeremiah 29, it's a very familiar chapter to us. It's packed with promises that we all know, that we all like to stand on, and I'm glad that we do because they're wonderful, beautiful promises. But I think that we lose a lot of the richness and the fullness of this passage when we don't read it in context. We read about a hopeful and prosperous future in, in verse 11, and we love that. But we forget to who and into what context those words were uttered. What did we read in verse 10? It said, when you have been in exile 70 years, God is talking to a people who are hopeless and far from home. And it is in that place to those people that God comes and issues the, the promise of a future in verse 11. Uh, you know, but even then, I think we're inclined to stop and, and we're inclined to think that because the countdown has been initiated, right? The promise has been issued, it's on autopilot, and it's going to happen, it's just a matter of time. But it's not just a matter of time. If we want the promise of God that he issues in verse 11, there's a central role that we have to play. It's not a role of earning God's love that was freely given to all men, and it's not a, a, role, a, a matter of earning salvation that was freely offered by grace on the cross alone, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and Titus 3, 5. But if we want to know the heart of God, if we want to know what it means to be men and women after God's own heart like David, we have to keep reading through verses 12 and 13. Then you will call on me. It's an active pursuit. You will come and pray to me. It's us drawing near to God for purpose of relationship. And I will listen to you. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And you seek me with all of your heart. Before we move on to question number two, I want to share with you two quick stories that you'll find in the introduction of the book. Um, and it speaks to this idea of posturing our hearts in, in full pursuit of the king. They're, they're stories that come from the C.S. Lewis novel, The Horse and His Boy, and the imagery that they paint is powerful. In the first story, the main character in the book, Shasta, he's on horseback and he's trying to reach the neighboring land of Archenland, where King Loon is king. And he's trying to reach the king because he has knowledge of an advancing army that is coming to attack Archenland. And it's a long story, uh, but long story short, he faces a lot of dangers and perils along the way, but he rides through the gates of Archenland just a bit ahead of the advancing army, and he's looking for the king, and he's despondent to find that the king is not there. And it sets up this beautiful picture where you would expect Shasta to ask what I call circumstantial questions. Questions like, why is the king not here? Or how will I possibly go on? But Shasta doesn't ask why, and he doesn't ask how. Shasta asks a directional question. Where? Where is the king? You see, the singular desire of Shasta's heart was to locate the king. All he wanted was a bearing and a reading on where the king was because he knew if he had that, that he could draw closer to the king. He could do it simply by aligning his pursuit in that direction. And I just, I just wonder this morning, when you and I discover that the king isn't where we expected him to be, what question do we ask? Do we ask circumstantial questions like why or how? Or do we ask the directional question of where? Where is the king? Because only that question 
will help us draw nearer to the the king. Only a singular desire to align our life and our search in the direction of the king will result in deeper levels of intimacy with him. Everything else is circumstantial. We have to be asking, where is the king? And in the second story, I maybe like this one even more, it's after a battle has ensued and Shasta's riding with King Loon's army and he becomes separated from the king's army and becomes lost. And a dense fog rolls in, so dense that Shasta can't see anything around him. So he was already afraid because he was lost, but now he's terrified because he can't see anything. And he becomes even more terrified when he realizes that there's a giant creature walking next to him. Fog is so dense that he can't see this creature but he can sense his presence and his size, and he can even feel his mighty breath against his skin. And Shasta is so terrified that he rides in silence for quite a time because he's afraid to speak, afraid that if he speaks, he will be devoured, and so he says nothing. But eventually, because he doesn't know what else to do, Shasta musters the courage to ask this question. He asks, who are you? And you guys, the creature responds in the same way that the king will respond to us if we ask him of his identity. The creature responds, one who has waited long for you to speak. And I would just tell you this morning, our king is walking so close to us that we can sense his presence and we can feel his breath like the mighty rushing wind. That's what the scripture calls it, the mighty rushing wind of his breath. And he's longing for relationship with us. He's longing to dialogue with us. But here's the thing. He won't force himself on us. He is waiting and even longing for us to speak. He is desperate for us to inquire of his identity. If we will just muster the courage to ask it of him, he will make himself fully known to us. And you don't have to take my word from it. If you finish reading our passage, go to verse 14 where we left off. What will happen if we come to him and call on him, pray to him, and seek him with all our hearts? Here's what it says. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. It's a promise. If we will, then he will. If we will draw near, call on him, seek him, ask of his identity, he will be found by us. He will deliver on his promises. Church salvation is free, and intimacy with the king is also free, but it's not automatic. It is not on autopilot. We have to initiate the conversation. We have to invite his presence in. We have to engage that pursuit and the search. If we want to become men and women after God's own heart, that is where it starts. It requires seeking him with all of our hearts. That is what enables us to answer David's question with David's answer. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. So question number two, how can we truly discover the king? You know, I think most of us are familiar with searching for the king. Uh, Maybe not all of us do it consistently or as much as we should, but I think most of us engage in some level of pursuit of a greater understanding of God. We read his words, we try to understand his ways and his instructions, and in short, I think we're trying intellectually to know more about the king. And I want to choose my words wisely here because, church, that's a very good thing. It's a necessary thing for finding the king. We have to do it. It's the very foundation for discovering the king. 
Without a knowledge of the king's name and his ways and his words, we have nothing. So the search is a good thing, it's a essential, an essential thing, and it's a foundational thing. But I want you to hear me here because I use the word foundational intentionally. Because I think a lot of us, certainly me included, we have taken that intellectual search that the king intended to be the foundation of our relationship, and we've turned it into the finish line. We've made the intellectual acquisition of facts and information about the king into our final goal. We've decided that if we can acquire enough information about the creator and the lover of our soul, then we will have arrived. But scripture is replete with admonitions about why we are to acquire a knowledge of the king. And it is not so that we can demonstrate that we have arrived. We are to lay the foundation of a knowledge of the king because the king wants to build a relationship on that foundation. And then he wants to infuse into that relationship a practice of service through which he can reach the world. So often we've made it about a destination. We've made it about the acquisition and articulation of information. And we need to know more about the king, absolutely. But that's not our destination. And in fact, our entire search for the king is not about a destination. It's about a relationship. It's about a personal and intimate discovery with and of the one who made us and who hardwired us to need him. I want you to think back to that story of Shasta and the creature. Our king's not walking beside us because he wants to get where we're going. He walks beside us because he wants to speak to us. And he wants to be spoken to by us. He wants a two-way relationship with us. He is desperate to take the weight of our questions upon himself and to help us navigate our path. He wants nothing more than to engage in discovery with us. But again, the king won't force himself on us. Instead, he walks and he waits. He walks beside us in hopes that we will speak. He walks beside us and waits for us to inquire of his identity. He waits for us to ask him just who he is. And so I wonder today how many of us are walking our path in silence. How many of us have acquired a lot of information about our king but have yet to truly discover him? How many of us can tell the world about the love of Jesus but fail to regularly engage the discovery that only comes with an invitation for the king to speak into us? How many of us have settled for simply knowing of the king? And I'm, I'm just here to tell you there's so much more available than that. Because the very attributes of the king that make him great and that make him powerful and that make him fearful, they're intended to be put to work in the world through you and through me as we dare to engage in discovery with him. So how do we truly discover the king? I suggest to you this morning that it is by finding the courage to finally break our silence. And to finally ask the daring question, who are you? Question number three, and we'll move to a close. How can we be the one? I think many of us look around the world today, I certainly do, and we long to save it. We, we long to change our generation, but it's overwhelming. I would go so far as to say that it feels impossible, and yet we know that in some way we're called to just that. And I would tell you that Noah felt the same way. 
Noah lived in a generation that had so rejected God that God's anger burned to the point of deciding to destroy all that he had created. That's pretty bad. In fact, Genesis 6 says that God regretted creating humans. It's really what it says. Go read it later. It says that he regretted creating, creating humans and putting them on the earth, but Noah found favor. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, which will be on the screen, says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says that he is going to and fro to the ends of the, of the earth. And what's he looking for? He's looking for one who is faithful. The generations in this example were so lost that God couldn't even find one. And I would tell you this morning that I feel like in many ways that applies to our generation as well. But then I realized that if he can't find one, then it must include me. If it is true today that the king is going to and fro and can't find one in all the earth who is faithful, then that by definition has to include me. And I wonder this, I wonder, have I been so worried about the generation that I haven't made sure that I am found walking faithful? Noah's actions saved his generation and all the generations that followed. But how? How did it happen? It happened because when the king went to and fro in a world so depraved that he had decided to destroy it, he found one. Amongst all that depravity, the king found one who was faithful, and through that one, he saved the generations. He saved you and he saved me. So what about you this morning? In a way, I'm sorry to ask a probing question, but in a greater way, I'm not sorry at all because I love you and I know that the king has a mighty plan to work in you. But you have to be yielded to him. When the king walks this earth in this generation, when he goes to and fro looking for just one, just one who is faithful, will he find you? Where will you be? And what will you be found doing? Will he pass over you and continue his search? Or will you be found to be the one? Will you be found walking faithfully and found like Noah, ready to pick up your axe and to fell trees with backbreaking labor and to build your ark? Will you be ready to dedicate the rest of your days to whatever task it is that God has called you to? Will you be found willing and ready to be made a fool in the eyes of the world in exchange for just one thing. Greatest thing. To be the one that finds favor and intimacy in the eyes of the king. And friends, I would tell you this morning that that is what it takes to become men and women after God's own heart. He's not searching for perfection, but he's desperately searching for one who would yield fully to him. And I would ask you this morning, will you be that one? 
Finally, I would tell you that a full discovery of the king means living lives that are dedicated to service. If we want to truly know what it means to have intimacy with the king, we cannot rest in an intellectual search. We cannot rest in simply an action-oriented discovery of the king. We need to commit our lives in service to the, to the king. And this idea is embodied in the conversation that Jesus had with Peter. Peter was desperate to show Jesus that he loved him and that he wanted to care for him and that he wanted to serve him. What did Jesus tell him? He said, feed my sheep. Peter's not satisfied because what he wants is more of Jesus. And not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. It's because the king doesn't distinguish between service to him and service to his people. Serving his people is serving the king. Just very briefly, this was made real in my life not long ago. I'd been working in the same office building for 10 years, walking up and down the same street for 10 years, and I'd only been vaguely aware of a man, a one-legged man that lived homeless on my street. His, his name was Rodney. I didn't know it at the time. Uh, but a new colleague joined our office. His name was Ben. He'd been there for two weeks, and I was walking down the street with Ben, and Ben stopped to talk to this man. He already knew his name. He knew his story. And as they finished their brief conversation and Rodney started to work his crutches to walk away from us, I realized that he was wearing Ben's clothes. And I realized that for 10 years, I had an opportunity to serve the king, and I'd been blind. And Ben had been here for two weeks, and he knew already that homeless Rodney, one-legged Rodney, was King Rodney. And he served him. 1 Peter 2.9 in the King James Version says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And church, we're called to that royal priesthood. And I would just suggest to you this morning that we're pretty good at half of that. We love the royal part of it. We're not so good at the priesthood part. We love the idea of associating with the king, associating with royalty. And I work in a world where proximity and access to power is everything. We're excited about being in the orbit of royalty. And so when we're invited to associate with the king of kings, we jump at the chance. We are in. But then we realize that it involves service. We realize that we're called to a priesthood as well. We realize that the way we live out this continual discovery of the king is to live in perpetual service to those around us. And here's the honest truth. It can be really hard. And that story I just told you about King Rodney, I mean, to be honest with you, that's the easy part because the need is clear. The hard part is living in service to one another, those of us in this room, those of us who should have our act together, the hard part is being willing to subordinate our own life and our own goals and our own priorities to serve those who either A, don't deserve it, or B, ought to be able to serve themselves. But I want to tell you this morning, it is the only way that we will truly discover the king. Because you see why we are called to serve the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's already told us where we can find him. The king has told us where he waits for us. The king has told us that he has intentionally concealed himself. Where? In the midst of the sheep. If we want to know the heart of God, if we want to be men and women after God's own heart, we have to embrace service to the sheep because that is where we will find the king.
Will you be the one? Will you feed the sheep? One final very brief point. I don't want to skip over this. In 1 Peter 2.9 calls us a peculiar people. Also calls us a chosen generation. And Scripture repeatedly calls us to be set apart. And friends, there's an increasing feeling in the church that all of that means that we should withdraw unto ourselves. And I think the thought comes from a good place, honestly, because, and I don't want to impugn anyone who has that thought because I understand it and I understand the genuine motive and why you would feel that way. But I also think it's dangerous and contrary to the full thread of Scripture. And when I read in 1 Peter 2, 9 that we are to be peculiar, I'm reminded that being peculiar requires something against which we contrast. I'm reminded that it requires something against which the world will notice that we are different. And if we are to withdraw only unto ourselves, there will be no contrast. If we withdraw only unto ourselves, we will all be the same. It is an existence in this world, yet not conforming to it, that creates a contrast and makes us peculiar. It is going into all the world, being salt and light, investing truth in the marketplace, and making disciples of all men that makes us peculiar. But we have to be willing to show a contrast. We have to be willing to be peculiar. Are you willing? Will you be the one? As we move to a close and as the band comes, I would just invite you to stand with me. But I really want to ask you to lock in with me for about three more minutes because I want to send you out with a word that I feel strongly in the depth of my soul is for this church today. We've talked a lot this morning about our responsibility to be the one, to be men and women after God's own heart, to be found faithful, to take ownership of our own walk and how that can save the generation. And it's absolutely true. But church, there's a final layer here that's available to us as the church collectively. And I want to read to you from Ezekiel 37. It's 10 verses. It's fairly, fairly long, but I want you to really listen closely because I feel so strongly that this is for you today. The word of the Lord from Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked of me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. 
So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet. And I think in so many ways this describes us, the church. In so many ways we are dead to the power that is available to us. Our bones are dry and we're in desperate need for our lungs to be filled with the very breath of God. But you guys, for so long, I've read this passage, Ezekiel 37, as a powerful promise that life is available to us. And I've read it as a story of life conquering death and of resurrection and restoration of that which is lost. I've read it as a promise that any of us no matter how depraved, can be the one. And it is all of those things, but church, for us, it's more than that. When I read that passage to you a moment ago, I left off three words. Three words that changed the game completely for us in the church. I read to you this, I read, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet. And that's awesome. It's life breathed into bones. But I want you to listen now as I add the final three words, because it changes the game entirely. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet. Here it is, a vast army. Church, we're not supposed to rise as individuals. We are a vast army that all too often is just a valley of dry, dead bones. And it is true that we are called to take individual ownership of our relationship with the King, that He's desperate to know us personally and intimately, and that we can be found to be the one when He comes looking. But as you look around this room today, That call to life and to intimacy and to service is for each one in this room. And here's the thing. It's for us to do together. As we rise individually, we're called to rise as the church and to make up a vast army that will stand as one and against which no evil can stand. That's the call for us today. And I hope I hope that you won't leave today without responding to the call that I know is burning in your heart. And I know it's burning in yours because it's burning in mine. And I want to stand with you in that army. With new life breathed into us by the Almighty King. What is holding you back? What is keeping you dry and dead? Where are you being called to serve? What has prevented you from rising and stepping into the line of duty and filling the hole in the ranks of this vast army that your absence has left, that my absence has left, while we're a valley of dry, dead bones? We're going to sing about this very thing now, but I just want to say to you, there's a role for you to play in this vast army that is rising, but it requires you coming to life. It begins in this moment. So I want us to rise today. I want us to stand shoulder to shoulder with your brothers and sisters in Christ as part of that vast army and let's worship our King.